So, Mike Casey, we have you here today. I'm super excited to talk with you. Welcome to the Pre-PTs Talking PT. It is a podcast aimed towards pre-physical therapy students. But you are an orthotist, prosthetist, and a co-owner of Elite Biomechanical Design. Mike, good to have you. I am act- I'm actually an orthotist. I did not do prosthetic training. Oh, okay, good to know. So Matt, who works with me, is a prosthetist. He did not do orthotic training. And then Nick, who recently got his master's in orthotics and prosthetics, and Loma Linda is both. And and that will be changing moving forward. Given the pathway, you're not going to see guys that just do orthotics or just do prosthetics anymore. Uh, that master's program is all encompassing. So now it's you could potentially just not sit for your boards for one discipline. But I can't anticipate anyone should be doing that. Right. Man, yeah, it's it's totally different now, huh? It's a lot different. I mean, when I went through, honestly, I took most of all my anatomy, physiology, kinesiology stuff at the JC transferred to Chico State to get my kinesiology degree. Um, at the time, that was kind of the going thing. And uh, I actually never finished. I still have like a semester and a half at Chico State because I, I contacted the boards. And they're like, well, there's a special pathway. You've had so many years experience in the field seeing patients that they allowed me to sit. And I passed my boards. So once I passed my boards, I just went to start seeing patients. Now, that's not possible anymore. I mean, that A, you can't do it with a bachelor's degree, period, anymore. All those special pathways that used to exist have been gone for quite some time now. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, a little envious to uh, that pathway. <laughs> it was four years that you had to have seen patients. So I think that the tragedy has been that you're, you're on-the-job training now you get your master's degree, you go to do a residency, but in reality, most of the time, you're just thrown to the wolves. I mean, Nick, who works for me, he got his master's at home, and the, you know, they basically just use you as cheap labor. They can pay you next to nothing, and they throw you into the room with patients, and they're like, figure it out. It is just a bad gig, you know, so the kid that worked, we paid half his master's, he's coming back, he has to do his residency, and then he's obligated to work for me for six years to pay me back for the $50,000 he spent on his master's degree, but he's going to spend a whole year with me. Like, and the first three months, he's going to sit there with his mouth shut and and ask questions at the end. The second three months, he's going to be fairly involved in the, the eval. The third three months, I'm going to try to sit there and keep my mouth shut as much as possible. You know, in the last, I'm just going to be kind of sitting there. I'll only probably comment to him when I'm like outside the room, like, you may want to consider this or this. Because <clears throat> he's got to build his confidence, but he's also, the, almost all the studies that they're teaching the master's program were done in the 1950s. So most of that stuff we don't do anymore. And the unfortunate reality, and I, I don't know if this is just in orthotics and prosthetics, is that if you are a really good orthotist or you're a really good prosthetist, you're seeing patients. Because if you're really good at what you do, you work in private practice because it's where you can make the most amount of money. I mean, that's just the reality of what what, what happens. Yeah. And all of those studies are anecdotal. People come out of school. When you're passing your boards, one of the questions specifically states, are you going to use a solid plastic brace on a diabetic patient? And if you say yes, you fail that section. But we do it every single day. So instead of teaching the next generation when that's really appropriate and what you have to watch out for, most of the test questions, not all of them, but a lot of them are geared towards what the lawyers want to hear. And unfortunately, that's not 
not how we treat patients in real life. So there's a definite bridge that needs to be jumped from the educational part to actually going in and getting a positive patient outcome. Right. Man, what do you, uh, what do you think? Just more clinical experience and I don't know, more awareness. I think think the residency, I think you should probably have to do a two year preceptorship. And then I think you should have to have at least two years patients with another clinician. And I think that that should be monitored a little better so that they, you can't just do what a lot of people do right now. Hire, hire residents, just come in with patients and not spend any time with them. You should legitimately have to be in the room, but it's hard, right? Our industry has been rocked by cutbacks and cutbacks and cutbacks and cutbacks. And there's no margins left anymore. So there's no money to be made. So it's really hard to pay someone to sit in the room with a clinician and make zero revenue for the facility. I mean, that sinks a place really, really fast. So, I mean, I see why that happens. We won't do it because the, the whole point of us investing for the last 10 years into the guy we're sending off to college is that we believe he's the future of our practice. And we don't want someone seeing our patients that doesn't know what they're doing. I mean, we've built a, a practice solely on getting better patient outcomes than anyone else. And that's why we see more patients than anyone else. Yeah. And I don't know. To get. I don't know, policies to change a little bit? Do you think policymakers need to be more exposed? Does there need to be more, I don't know, wording from... You know, unfortunately, it's, it's, we live in America, man, right? So there, it's such a niche industry. There's so few orthotists and prosthetists. We have literally, I think, one lobbyist that represents the entire industry. And until, unless you have more money and you had, a, you know, there, for every one orthotist or prosthetist, there's probably 5,000 PT. So it's such a niche that you're, you, there's not enough revenue flowing in, and that's America, right? Unless you got a bunch of money that you can throw at going in and really lobbying hard, i.e. producing the pockets of politicians, you know, nothing changes. So every once in a while, they'll try to radically cut prosthetics back. I mean, they tried to, a few years ago to roll it back to 1970. They wanted to start putting wooden feet on prosthetic patients. And you had 200,000 amputees lined up in Washington. That wasn't very popular, right? Senators don't like having a bunch of people with their legs cut off outside their building screaming and yelling. So they put that on hold. But, you know, you have to remember when I started doing this 20 some years ago, our, like our Blue Shield Blue Cross contracts were 35% above the Medicare fee schedule. Now they're 30 to 40% below. Hmm. So it, the reimbursement's been cut 75%, but the cost of doing business has gone up 500. So there truly is no money in it anymore. But the government's unaware, really, you know, their, their stance isn't really to go into any clinics and be like, well, how much do you guys make? And it's okay. And the more rural you get, like if I was in Sacramento, my Medi-Cal population would be significantly lower. But, you know, the more rural you get, especially where we are in Northern California, the, the, the harder and harder it is just to keep the doors open, you know, and then throw in two years ago having a Paradise Wildfire burned out of our offices and then this year a pandemic. I mean, it's the business side of things is, is certainly a challenge. I mean, there is no doubt about that. Absolutely. Now, I definitely want to dabble in that a little bit later. But, man, there is endless interest in you. You have uh, just so much to talk about, and I love it. But uh, so during the pandemic, were you you were considered essential, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, people, and people we didn't still need it. Dramatic pop and prosthetics. You know, they're still cutting off people's legs. Those are not elective. What we did see is that the bracing side of things almost dried up completely. 
So we see a lot of veterans. That work stopped entirely. Most of the patients who were normally going to outpatient physical therapy had just opted to stay home. So, you know, we do a lot of work with physical therapists. That all just went away. Several of the doctors who send patients, you know, on a regular basis just stop seeing patients altogether. So, yeah, on the bracing side, things got really, really, really slow. I mean, I was seeing patients, you know, we're still only back three days a week. Some of those weeks, I would literally have four people to see in the three days I was in. Man, wow. So did that give you more time to work on other projects? Because I, I noticed on uh, your your website and the Facebook that you guys had unique projects going on. Is that something you're able to work more on? Mm, no, those kind of come and go. You know, like I just built a prosthetic leg for a pit bull congenital. Um, that's been kind of a fun side project. Um, you know, we did a really cool, I don't know if you got a chance to check out the website, we did a really cool brace uh, for a guy who really nasty ATV rollover, shattered his arm, wanted to go back to being able to shoot a bow, you know, came in with an idea of some kind of harness, but that, like, that's not going to work. So we made him a carbon graphite. Uh, basically, it looks like it looks like the guy from, like, uh, what's the superhero guy, the Russian dude from the Marvel comics. <laughs> oh, yeah. We went in, our, in Masio camouflage. That's so but cool. it takes the load from, from the bow, 50 pounds draw, and his palm all the way through the shoulder. So he's he, he broken the arm like five times since he originally broke. So we made him a special device that goes over his entire arm that transfers the load from the palm of his hand to his shoulder so that he can pull back a bow with 60 pounds of draw. Because most states require a 50 pound minimum for elk hunting. Man, 50 pounds? Yeah, like all of your Idaho, I think Oregon, all of them require at least a 50-pound minimum draw weight. They don't want you shooting an elk and just hurting it. Right, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> just pretty sure you kill it. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what kind of a prosthetic you, you would have for that. and That's uh, that's super there's, interesting. There's, there's video of him. He gave me a hip So we actually put his x-rays and his, uh, his video. I mean, that one actually went semi-viral. I think it's been viewed like 15,000 times now. Oh, so cool. But that's a different project, really, a unique sort of thing. You don't see a ton of that stuff. So those are the ones that are a little bit more challenging. I mean, the cool thing is that the more experience you have and the more you understand the materials that you're working with, the more you can kind of think outside the box when someone comes in with a challenging case. Like, how can you actually, you know, benefit the patient? Right. Yeah, and that's that's what makes you guys like artists, really. And we call, it, we call it the dark arts of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, uh, what what exactly is, is your position? And uh, I also have heard other names that you were called that are. So I'm technically an orthotist. You know, obviously in my capacity at the company, I'm the CEO and the CFO and the president. So I do pretty much all of the financial stuff. I, I make all of the decisions as far as where the company's going to go, if we're going to open a new branch, close a new branch. Now we have a board of directors. There's three owners there. So if I'm going to, you know, throw more than $10,000 at the project, we certainly have a board meeting and I explain what I'm doing. But I pretty much do all of the business planning. If we're advertised, if we are aware, if we're going to do marketing, how, 
patients full time. So I, I'm by far the busiest horse of this we have on staff. Wow. Where I feel more patients than I think anyone else as far as patients or encounters are concerned by far. Yeah, and I mean, just hearing you talk was was really uh, really mind blowing for just a, a physical therapy aide. I uh, I knew I had to bug you. Yeah, not at all. It's such a unique sort of thing. And to be honest with you, I mean, I got into it because I grew up in Colab, a little town in the foothills outside. And when I got older, I was working at a body shop, going to community college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And my neighbor called me, who was an orthotist, and was like, hey, I need you to come in and help me make some braces. So at 18, I started working at a shop as a tag part-time making braces. And about 21, I decided I'd do it full-time. And about 23, I was like, maybe I'll do this. Very cool. Yeah, I had no idea what it was. I'm like, what do you do? You make braces. <laughs> That's so cool. And um, I, I have heard you be referred to as biomechanist. Is that still appropriate? Yeah, so, I mean, that's really what you're doing. I, I, if you think about it, you're using a mechanical device to try to restore normal human function. So, you, I think the thing that frustrates us sometimes as clinicians is that I don't think, I don't want to pick on PTs, but if they don't get me wrong, a lot of the physical therapists don't seem to understand the mechanics behind. They understand what muscle groups need to fire and what needs to be strengthened. But I don't think they have as good of a grasp as how what the mechanics should work, like a, like a gate. And not to say there aren't some that specialize in that, but your average PT that you go and see a patient with, I find they have a really hard time picking out gate deviations just by watching patient walk. Like they don't seem to grasp why the foot hitting the ground affects the knee the way it does. Or for someone like me, it's just blazingly obvious. So that's why sometimes it's easy for them to call me in and I'll just watch a patient walk and I'm like, we just need to put a lateral wedge on them and they're fine, right? Everyone's like, oh my God, you're a genius. And I'm like, it's not really that complicated. Look at them walks. You know, your heel strike a lateral aspect and calcaneus as your center of mass crosses midline, the foot should go into pronation. If you have a delay there, then you need to use lateral wedging to force the foot into pronation quicker in the gait cycle. But unless you can recognize where the foot should be in each section, you know, in each stage of gait, you would have no idea. But it seems like, and the PTs, some of them start to get it over time. I, I don't know what the PTs do in school, but I don't think that's a big part of it. Because they have all the PTs I work with, you have a really hard time just picking that stuff up. And if you're talking about a physician, it's just not existing. Yeah. I mean, 99.9 of the time, the doctor doesn't even take them off the table. So, like, I have to call the doc, and I'm like, look, when they're walking, they're slamming their knee in hyperextension. They're like, oh, they are? Because they never even took the patient off the table. So, that's where it gets complicated sometimes. And I will tell you, probably the harder thing is when you're working with, like, a therapist or a doctor who has a vastly different idea on how to solve the problem, that that gets hard. Because, again, as you can imagine, 20 years of doing stuff, you've tried all kinds of stuff, so it's difficult when you have a doctor who wants you to do something that you know won't work. Or a PT that's like, I think this is what you need to do, and you're like, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that gets a little delicate, where you, especially when you're with a patient, right? You don't want to be like, I mean, I'm like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But at the same time, I can't, I can probably tell you this came in a lot of time. I'm a lot more willing you know, I was 15 years ago to say, no, I'm not doing that. Like, it's, it's not going to work. And and I, fortunately enough, I've been around the same time the town for so long. People recognize that I don't make that call because I want to prove that I'm some, you know, 
genuinely, there's a mechanical reason why I'm like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> right. We shouldn't do that. Yeah, and it's for the interest of the patient. I saw one this morning at Enlo. Uh, had all of his toes amputated. They put him in a, one of those Darko offloading boots, which is just the stupidest thing in the world. And then they put him in a regular can locker boot. And the vascular surgeon called me and said, hey, I want you to go with this guy. I'd like you to make something. So when I went into the eval, it wasn't that he really needed anything. It's just that every time they put the boot on, they were tightening the strap that goes over the wound to the, and it was just squeezing the heck out of the wound. And I'm like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> so I just called the vascular surgeon with like, we need to put strict orders in there not to, not to use the distal strap. But he, you know, he has no wounds at his ankle, so put him in the fracture boot, use the, all the ones down the leg, use the one at 45 degrees that holds the ankle in, and then don't strap the forefoot where all the wounds are. <laughs> but again, it's one of those things that's like, it's blatantly obvious when you walk in and look at it. You're like, I don't understand why all these people don't grasp it. No? <laughs> you put a strap right over the wound. Of course it's not. It's causing problems. I don't know, man. Don't. Sounds like you're a genius. <laughs> I don't well, in any case, it really, it's one of those things that, again, like, I, you know, I'm not going to build a hospital for a call. So you drive over there and you spend an hour and you explain it to everyone. Go back, you spend another 20 minutes on Epic, you know, logging in and doing chart notes. The idea there is to make sure that you advise them in the right direction. Luckily, again, I have a good, really good relationship with the vascular surgeon. I call his cell phone, he answers, we have a chat about it. Like, that all makes sense to me. I'll put it on Things go smooth like that. Yeah. But that's not always the case. I mean, there are some docs that we don't work with all the time, and sometimes it gets complicated because they're asking you to do stuff, and you're like, that's really not a good idea. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I, that will do it. It won't work. And that's that's complicated. I mean, those things are complicated, right? I mean, there's a there's a huge hierarchy. I'm sure you saw it just being a PTA. Like, PTs don't question what the doctors order. Right. But sometimes the doctors aren't right. And that, therein lies the, the problems. Therein lies where you're like, oh, God, what do I do here? And I would argue that having really good relationships with your referrals makes just an absolute world of difference to make sure you're going to get positive patient outcomes. That's amazing. I like hearing that. That's a, a good way to look at that. Yeah, no, I definitely definitely have seen uh, the the hierarchies, and I could I could see where you would fit in. And um, that being said, how often do you work with physical therapists? Oh, I mean, all the time. Usually, usually at least once a day. Okay. I mean, you know, because my thing is that I see a lot of strokes and stuff like that. So you're such an integral part of that whole process. And oftentimes, you know, they'll call me in fairly early and I'll look at the patient. And I, especially like CCA, would be hesitant to make a call because they make so much improvement so quickly. And, and a lot of times I just follow those cases. You know, well, I'll, try, I'll give them some trial braces to try on the patients, but I'm also hesitant because the rules are so strict now. You get one every year. I want to make darn sure that whatever we end up giving them is going to be the best thing for them. And strokes, for, you know, in particular, present a challenge there. Um, you also see, you know, like MS patients, they have really good days and really bad days. Sometimes that can be a challenge as well to make sure what you're giving them is going to be as stable as it needs to be on their really bad days, but also something that they can rely on on a day where they've got close to normal strength. So you're not restricting their motion. Just making something that's too rigid, right? I mean, needs a lot of stability. You create stability through rigidity most of the time or if you have a patient who's got like a calf strength issue you would always use an anterior design that comes up the front so you can create a ground reaction with the orthosis but 
know, on some days they may not have that problem, right? It may be really rare that they have calf issues. Like an MS patient, that can be all over the board. Some of them are fairly stable and some of them have extreme days up and down. Those are some of the challenging cases. I mean, you almost have to see them four or five times. I'm a big fan of, of trialing braces. You know, I have a whole stack of different, every kind of the sun that I can send a patient home with for a week and see how they do in the real world. You know, and if it just come back and they're like, oh my God, this is a game changer. And then you're like, great. And they come back and they're like, this digs into my ankle and I can't wear it for more than 10 minutes. You're like, dude, we got to move on. That's most commonly when you have instability of more than one plane, right? Not just foot drop from a lack of anterior tibialis function, but foot drop with also ankle bears, ankle valgus. That you're not just going to pull something out of the box and treat that. You need to get a hold of the calcaneus so they can't invert or evert, as well as address the sagittal plane deficiencies. And those are a lot of the things you look at during eval to figure out what, what are we going to do here. Yeah, and I mean, just reflecting on what you're saying, I I definitely have experience working with MS patients. And uh, when I was a nurse assistant, my job was to walk with MS patients. And their variability on mood and just uh, energy level was like insane. I mean, it was just all over the board. Yeah, it it can change. And again, like even CVAs, you can see a patient who can barely get up and then three weeks later they're walking with a walker. Yeah, you're like, huh. So, you know, that, that function changes so rapidly. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll make a brace for them that's solid, but it's all made to be able to articulate. So I'll put all the molding gummies in it and leave it solid so that it's really, really rich and helps them. It's just get as they make progress, we'll cut it, put joints in it, use a posterior stop or cut that out spring ankle joints. I mean, whatever the patient gets to do, and you can change the design of the brace along with their progress. I say it's a definite art. And how many years have you have you been in the field? years old, my ex-wife burnt our house 
should be good. So. That's, that sounds like it's a result of burnout, like you were just doing too much. I said you'd get a small hospital like up in Susanville that's an hour and a half away that would call and say they need instruments for a case the next day. So, I mean, you're, you know, we just need you to drive them up here. It's, you know, it's a two-hour drive. So oh. I would get up in the morning and drive all the way to Eureka sometimes to do cases that they were going to, you know, the hospital over there probably bought $100,000 of their hand insurance from me. But I mean, I had to get up in the morning. It would, I don't even know how long that drive is. It's over 299 to the coast to get to Reading. I mean, it's probably a six-hour drive. I get up at 2.30 in the morning, drive there, do cases from 7 until, you know, 2 in the afternoon, drive home. <laughs> wow. And, well, and the yeah. 299, that, that highway used to be really, really rugged. Oh, it hasn't changed. No, it's just brutal. Yeah, I was just burnt out. Did you have to have training in order to even work in the operating room like that? Sure. I mean, all that's from the company. Like I say, the first company I worked for said so that Naples Florida for a bop. So and you learned, you know, what is terrible. It is how to feel what you should be wearing and you should, what lines you can cross, what lines you can't cross. And then, you know, before I ever was turned loose in the OR by myself, you know, I was eight months in the operating room with a guy who had been doing it for years. So you know, a lot of standing around with your hand behind your back, just being quiet. But <laughs> uh, I just don't answer him. So I could be, you know, that consists of like the anchors I put in, all the like, let's say the knee, the discal repair stuff, ACL screws, but everything, the pumps, the pump, the fluid, the, you know, the, the camera systems themselves that they stick in the knee, the cannulas that they put them through. It was really more the experience that was good. You know, it was, you, you kind of get a chance to know what the latest and greatest foot and ankle repairs are. Yeah, you know, we becomes morbid, but we bring up like cadaver feet and we do training locally for the a chance to work with cadavers. We had a cadaver lab in the city, so. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, I had no idea. <laughs> wow. What has been the greatest challenge when you first started your business? Uh, the rule changes by far. You know, when I first started doing this and up until about eight years ago, uh, a doctor would send a prescription and you would fill it. And that was it. You know, Medicare would show up maybe once every two years. They'd pull 50 charts, make sure that you actually gave it the end of it. And I mean, that's just not the way it's done anymore. It's just been a certain radical. So, you know, doctor orders an AFO, he has to write very specific things out of face-to-face physical coverage. You have still ambulatory. If you're not ambulatory, you're not eligible for ambulatory. The doc's like, hours you're done. They need it for a period of six months. I can't do it probably be better in two weeks, but they need it in the meantime, they won't cover it. But I mean, all that stuff is very specific, and it's very specific for each device. And if one thing's left out, it's not covered. And so we've just spent years now beating our heads against the wall trying to get physicians to do the correct documentation so the stuff will be covered. Yeah, so. Because Medicare is this, and this is a great part, right? If I provide a brace to a patient, and the notes don't justify coverage, I have no legal right to go after the patient for payment. They're like, you should have known better. So you just provided that for free. Wow. So when they first rolled the program out, 
they 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 recouped a hundred thousand dollars from my checking account, and I fought them on every single one of those cases. And several of those cases took six before I finally got to talk to a judge and gave me my money back. <clears throat> wow. And it's hard. I mean, that's really hard because the judge, you know, there are some companies that even up to, you know, a couple of years ago weren't, weren't asking the doctors for the notes. They were just banking on the fact that they would not get audited. But, you know, if you get audited on a $50,000 job and your parts cost thirty-five grand and you got to pay back the whole 50 grand, it, that's a tough one to swallow. Like, you better have the notes to, that were correct to be able to fight it. But the rules are very ridiculous, and the rules are very specific, and they've made doing business 10 times harder than it ever was. But that's been by far the biggest challenge, is the rule changes. I mean, and you know, every time we have a conference call with Medicare, they're like, call your congressman. So, I mean, I did. I had Doug LaMalp in my office twice. And his solution was for you to stop seeing Medicare patients. Uh, that's just not viable. You know, I'm like, I don't think you understand the demographics of your district. There's, that's not possible. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Man. But, you know, I, I give him credit for showing up in my office a few times. <laughs> <laughs> you got to bug him. You got to bug him. It's good. Yeah. So, uh, first, uh, just starting out with your business, what, what was, like, the most challenging part of just starting your business? Filling out all the applications. <laughs> All the, all the... In, in contract negotiations, right? I mean, so Blue Shield was accepting new providers in their network. Blue Cross was not, right? So you call Blue Cross and you're like, I'd like to become a provider. And they're like, yeah, no, we already have. We have. Think so. Huh. I mean, your Medicare application is about 100 pages long. The Medi-Cal you know, application is very similar. Like you have to register with Duns and Bradstreet, get a Duns number, and then you have to go on and register to federal registry. And then you have, I mean, nobody teaches you how to do that. You just have to figure it out. And then, like I say, you know, honest to God, I the only I strong armed them. They took over a, a Medi-Cal contract, and I basically called bluffed them. I called them up and I was like, "Look, I'm a provider at a Medi-Cal clinic." And now you're managing some of those contracts, and this is ridiculous because I'm, you know, all of a sudden then they're, they get kicked to you, and we can't provide it because we're not your network. And I mean, I, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's illegal because you're managing a state contract, and I'm a state contractor. And I think it was just enough that they were like, "Here, we're just going to let you know." Nice. <laughs> that's that's amazing. But, but, I mean, it was completely bluffing. They could have told me to shut it. I, <laughs> there's nothing I could have done. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Noted. No, that's that's really great because I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of PT students are really considering the business route of everything. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Blue Shield doesn't care if you want to open up a PT practice. If there's five other PTs in town that they're already contracted with, they don't need you. Right. The doctor is no different. I mean, like, if you wanted to go out and open your own clinic, a lot of those, like the guy up in Susanville, has been there thirty years. He's grandfather. The only thing that makes his practice valuable is that he has all the contract because he's grandfathered in because he's been there for thirty years. Like you get a new doctor that comes to town, it takes them a year just to get contact before they can even see a patient. That makes sense. I mean, you'd rather go to somebody you trust that can get the job done right and at a, like a reasonable price. Well, and think if you're a PT or an orthotist like me, you're going and asking a doctor to send you referrals, and then they send you three patients, but then the patients go back and said that you can't see me because he doesn't take my insurance. There's a point where the doc's like, hey, I'm just going to use someone down the street who doesn't take all these insurances. Mm. 
Right. You know, it's hard. You're like, oh, just send me the, just send me these. <laughs> like, no. This guy down here does good work, and I could just send him all everything. He just nice. Yeah. So networking is huge. It sounds like, especially in a rural area like uh, Chico. I mean, you guys are fairly rural. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, you're probably talking that I would say 50% of even our Medicare patients are many, many. So we you know Medicare is going to pay us 80% and Medi-Cal is going to tell us to shove it. And so we're only going to collect 80% of what we bill with the fee schedule anyways. Wow. And then you figure if you have a straight Medi-Cal patient, you know, they're 40% below or more, sometimes 50% reimbursement of what the Medicare fee schedule is. So oftentimes you're just breaking even. You're getting back what you put into the orthotic process. You make nothing. Wow. And I mean, from the perspective of my Oroville and Chico office, I, I need ninety-five thousand dollars a month to break even. That's what it costs me to cover my bills. Dang. So you have to like sometimes when there's an eye roll coming from an orthotist when they when the when the PT wants them to come back five times and look at a guy who's gonna modify his shoe and charge him thirty five bucks for the shoe modification. Sometimes I a little bit where I'm like, I don't think you understand. I make forty five dollars an hour. I've come over here now and burnt three hours seeing this patient. We're gonna charge him thirty five bucks. That's not even gonna cover my materials and my tech time. <laughs> you know, I'm like uh, <laughs> I'm doing you a <laughs> that's important no it's important to hear that's good to know good to which I still do it because I think it's the right thing to do but at the end of the day you have to take the business model into account you cannot just see patients for free all day long and still keep the doors open it doesn't work like that sure so what has led to uh, the success of your business and I mean how, how have you made it this far just a completely different model than what everyone else everyone else you're with, and, and I, so I used to be a practice manager for Hanger. They're the 800 pound gorilla. They're the only publicly traded company that does orthotics and prosthetics. They're nationwide. There's an enormous amount of downward pressure to put the cheapest piece of crap that pulls out for the most amount of money on everyone that walks through the door. And they will tell you what they beat into their, their, their clinician's head is how do you maximize profit? How do you maximize profit? How do you maximize profit? And that's just not how we do business. We've built our business model around getting positive patient outcomes. And because we are in a small town, we, we banked 100% on the fact that if we were getting 100 times better results than any other provider in town, we would end up eventually being the largest provider because people, in the end, want stuff to work. And so it's a unique business model. A lot of my colleagues think we're crazy, but we went from year one in 2010, you know, with $200,000 in revenue, we doubled our revenue every year for the first six years of our business. Beautiful. Good work. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's one of those things because you build relationships, you get good outcomes. It's a different business model. Really striving to get positive patient outcomes is, although it sounds noble and awesome, it's just not what they can and they're all trying to maximize profit, but not really focus on patient outcomes. And you know, I get into it with my colleagues at conferences about it all the time. Like if we shifted, if, if the whole industry operated the way we operate our company, we would be in much better shape, but it doesn't. I mean, people are still, by and large, making decisions on what to put on the patients based on what insurance provider they have and what the, you know, what, what the cheapest option that reimburses the highest amount is, not on what's the best option for the patient. 
a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the whole ethics thing we were talking about earlier, it's, it's tricky. Well, I mean, PT is no different. It's, it's a racket. And, and, you know, if you really sit down and have an honest conversation with any PT, they understand it's a racket. Like, if you work at a skilled nursing facility, they're going to keep that patient on services until they can't bill for it anymore. It's not really about whether the patient's making gains or not. It's about how long can you justify getting paid by the insurance company. Think about a patient who had a stroke, right? They go inpatient, right, because they're in the hospital. And the inpatient therapy is pretty decent, hands-on. They're really trying to get the patient up and working. And then they send them home. And then the home therapist, 95% of the time, sit on the edge of the bed and ask them questions. And so it's a very common – we see it all the time. I'll go in and get called for an eval. We'll be walking a patient 200 feet in the hospital inpatient. I see them four weeks later after they've been at home doing home health therapy, and they can't walk at all. Because home health therapists are lazy. By and large, they don't do much. They talk a lot. They talk about exercises. But they won't release them to outpatient until they until they can't bill for it anymore. And then once they can't bill for it, then they go to outpatient physical therapy and the real work starts. And you get a, a therapist with some tools and the know-how to actually continue to move the case forward. But I would make the argument that in probably... 75% of those cases, if they didn't have home health therapy, those stroke patients in that window would do significantly better at regaining function. But it's the system. It's the same thing as skilled nursing facilities. I mean, it is an absolute racket. It, like, and your PTs all know that. I mean, they're still trying to do the best within the framework they can to make a positive impact, most of them. But it is a business model. It is not really what's set up to get the best patient outcomes. And it's frustrating. I mean, a lot of my PT friends are really frustrated about it. It's frustrating for me. I, I get myself in trouble all the time when I see a patient that I worked with, an inpatient that was walking 200 feet, and now they can't walk at all. I mean, and then I tell the family, you need to stop doing the stupid home health stuff and go to outpatient physical therapy. And then I get a phone call from the head of the home health department. And they're like, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> I'm like telling the patient what they need to do to get a positive outcome. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you're I'm messing with their racket, right? You, yeah. They weren't done billing for that service. There was more they could bill for it, and that makes them angry. Man, that is so interesting. But it is the way it works, and your PTs all know it, And but they play the game, right? They got into physical therapy because they want to make a positive impact. They still do it as best they can inside the framework. But it, you know, once you get how the whole system works, you're going, oh, wait a minute. Like everything else, it's all about the money. Like, that's what it is. Yeah, hear that. Well, we've just been somewhat fortunate in that Matt and I, we don't need to make a million dollars. We do fairly decent, you know. Some years we make a little bit of money, and some years, you know, like a couple years ago, the year of the fire, I think we made, we cleared a thousand dollars at the end of the year. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we weren't negative. But we didn't make anything. The reality is that, you know, we both do it because we really like to do it. And even the kid I put through school, you know, we were like, if you aren't doing this because you really want to help people, you should do something else. Like, it's, you don't make any money being an orthotist or a prosthetist. It's not the job to take. There's no more money in being an owner of a facility. What we do is we create a really positive work environment. Everyone that works at our office absolutely loves being there. Um, it's a, the best crew we've ever had. And so that, you know, you got to go to work every day as long as the people you work next to are all awesome people and there's a great vibe in the office every day. It's not a miserable place to go. So all our paychecks cash and we like what we're doing. So it's, you know, it works. Yeah. 
I like that a lot. How many people are on your team? So we have three office administrators in the Chico office, Matt and I see patients there, and then Nick comes and helps us out on Fridays. Uh, in Oroville, we have a part-time a gal who works uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Nick sees patients there in Oroville on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So normal times, he's in Chico seeing patients Mondays and Fridays, and Matt and I are there. And then we have uh, we had two technicians. Uh, one of them just moved to Nashville on a whim. Um, so we have one tech upstairs just making the stuff. Nashville? Are they into country music or something? You know, I, I, it's a long story. He was a guy that I hired from Pleasant Valley High School. He literally spent his entire senior year with me. And then he went to tech school at Washington, came back, and we hired him. And he worked for us. Got eight years. Um, and then, you know, he lived at home. I think his parents were like, you need to leave. Oh, man. <laughs> So he decided he was going to kind of strike it out because he had never lived on his own and he up and just moved to Nashville. So <laughs> we're still, you know, we're still quite cordial. I talked to him. So. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's cool. So you've had people that have worked there for some time. I mean, that shows the, um, oh, God, yeah. The, uh, uh the I will, environment. Uh, Dylan was the first person in 10 years to ever actually quit. Like, we've never had an employee quit before. Sure. Wow. And I mean, are you going to hire more aides or techs at the point? So no, Stevens gets. He just finished his masters. He just graduated. He'll be back uh, next month. So he's going to start doing the residency stuff, and that's going to probably keep us busy. No, I think we were a little bit tech heavy to begin with. Um, so no, I don't think we're going to hire another tech. I think the guy that we have up there is going to be able to kind of keep up with how much we see. Sure. We were a little bit heavy in that department but you know so no I don't think we'll need another techs okay and I mean when you when you were hiring uh, techs were you were you part of the hiring process yeah so I, I, I don't hire any of the front office staff anymore I have an office manager downstairs and anyone we hire in the office administration part she hires them and she fires them okay um, I hire the clinicians and I hire and, and the techs Sure. So specifically to the techs, what do you look for out of prospective employees? Mm. Someone who can take criticism without freaking out. It's so hard to learn. And it takes two years minimum before you can really do the job. So Jesse, the guy just hired, he, he used to work, at, uh, he, he did a lot of cell tower work. And then uh, he, he didn't want to travel so much, so he ended up getting a job at a cabinet shop here. And he worked at the cabinet shop building cabinets for the last like four years before he came to work for us. But he can pretty much do anything. You know, it's like he's one of those jack of all trades kind of guy. Wow. But you know, he also listens. He doesn't get he doesn't get offended if we're like, This isn't done right. We need it done this way. You know, that doesn't bother him. He's like, Okay. <laughs> okay. And if somebody gets offended, we've had that issue, you know, you hire someone they're just like, Well, they're constantly making an excuse. You're like, Look, I'm not I listen. I'm not personally attacking you. I'm telling you this is not the way this needs to be done. You know, like it needs to be done like this, isn't it? Yeah. But that, that's the sort of stuff you got to watch out for because that's never going to work out. In it's office administrator or tag or or even clinician. You know, like and Nick that had his masters in from Loma Linda. We're constantly like trying to help him learn how to get better patient outcomes. He is very receptive to that, which is good. Like he doesn't anytime he's not like, well, uh, this is the way I think it needs to be done. 
he recognizes that Matt and I are both like experts at getting really good outcomes and that's where he wants to be. Like he's in it to get good outcomes. So we knew we had the right guy when we realized that Nick was trying to achieve the best patient outcomes he could. As long as that person's on, on that page, the rest of it's easy. I mean, you just help point him in the right direction. If you see something that's, that could be changed, you explain why. So, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't think that we've had, ever had any issues with that. And, you know, I got lucky with the two kids for a long time. We, you know, Stephen was a tech at my office while he was getting his kinesiology degree. We just worked around his, his people. So, you know, we hired him right out of high school. So did Dylan. We hired him right out of high school. Wow. So. Yeah, it's, it's good to note. I mean, you, you want to you have somebody that's receptive and, and not offended. That way you could just be productive and have a good time at work, you know? Yeah, no. I mean, we do fun stuff. Like, you know, once a year I rent a van and I rent a house on the coast and we take a Friday off and I pay for everyone's booze and food. You know, we go out and hang out in Sand Dollar Beach for a whole weekend. I pay for everything. I mean, it's an important thing. I add the week of 4th of July. I give everyone, including part-time, you know, the whole week off for free. Like, if they went over hours, the part-time guys would have worked, I pay them for and I give the whole week of Christmas. We pay them for the whole week of Christmas. So, and then the, your regular employees still get two weeks paid vacation. And then I give them all a week of sick time. They get January. Like, if you need to take time off because you're sick, if your kid's sick, you know, we're pretty generous. I still pay, I pay 100% of all their health care. Like, they don't contribute. <laughs> right. I think we did, we did well over the Pretty close to $1.5 million in revenue last year, and 15% of that was healthcare costs. Yeah. So put that in perspective. I pay 100% of their secondary insurance as well. That, that's beautiful, so and I'm we, sure that, that comes we don't back. Money, but our employees are really well taken care of, so, and they know that, right? We pay them well. We have the best health insurance that money can buy, and they all appreciate that. So... We just don't have turnover. And it has been my experience through management and owning my own company. And st- you know, I started another O&P company, worked there for three years, and then ended up leaving. Like, I got a pretty good idea how it works. If, as long as you have a good team and you treat them well, everything runs smoothly. I mean, that's, so that's paramount. Yeah, it makes sense, too. I mean, it, it comes back. You know, they reciprocate that kind of love for the job and the work environment. And it shows. And again, it's a small town, right? So if they got a network of friends and they're all talking about like, how do you love, how do you like your job? And every one of them is like, I love where I work. I love the people that I work with and I absolutely love the people I work for. You know, in a small town, people hear that. And so you, you start getting a reputation of not only being a company that gets good clinical outcomes and you're really good with your patients, but a company that actually treats their employees well. And I would argue in a small town, that's important. I mean, maybe not in South Los Angeles or, you know, if you're in the East Bay, but certainly in a small enough community like this, that matters. I would say even in any work environment, it's important to take care of your employees and do all that because it does get reciprocated. I mean, I, I've never been more proud to work anywhere than at Enlo because they gave me really great orientation training. And yeah. it just showed that they do care about their employees. Yeah, I mean, my wife owns her own company as well, and they they spend an enormous amount of time on their onboarding process, and that's been one thing that every time she hires a new employee, they all comment, like, this has got to be the best onboarding process I've ever had. 
tell the people from day one that like you're going to be there for them. You're going to explain to them what role they have in the company, what their your expectations are of them, where to get resources for the stuff that they need. I mean, and if you do a good job of that, boy, I mean, I'll tell you, it makes a big difference. Yeah, no, and it it does show in in your success of your business too. I mean, I think that would be one of your assets for your business, one of the values. It seems like you have the overall business aspect really, really well established. And uh, I mean, you, you know, I, I, when I was when I was young, I worked for a guy who was the worst boss I've ever seen in my life. He ran his business into the ground at a time when you should have been making money hand over fist because the reimbursements were through the roof. He almost went bankrupt several times. So my first experience for the first 10 years was working for a guy who was a horrible, horrible business owner. I would argue that I learned an enormous amount from him. Then I got a job working for the 800-pound gorilla, and they sent me off to Bethesda, Maryland, and they kept you up till 3 o'clock in the morning giving you scenarios in which you had to present orals to the class on how you were going to save this business, turn this business around. So I learned the corporate way of, like, what do you need to do? What are the factors? What do you need to do to change those? And then I ended up working, starting a company with some of those guys. We, I worked three years with them. We had a parting of ways, and then before I opened my own. But I did all the work to open that clinic. The only thing they did is helped with some of the applications. But I took every possible step on my way to opening my own company to make sure that once I got to that point, I'd be successful. And, I, and quite frankly, I got lucky. I went out to lunch with one of my good friends. I was complaining about how crappy it was. And he's like, you should just open your own company. I'm like, yeah, it sounds great. But I need like a quarter million dollars. And so he was like, well, what would I get for 200 grand? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so... He didn't even know that, you know, Bruce and Matt had never even met each other. So I introduced the two of those guys and oh, a lot of beer drinking and, you know, realizing that we all had similar interests and we were all trustworthy and, you know, we opened the company. I think I, I only put in 10 grand. Matt put in 40,000, Bruce put in uh, 200,000. I own 40%, they both own 30%. So they had an enormous amount of faith and I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> And it's worked out well for both of them. So, I mean, neither one of them complained at all. <laughs> They're both like, this is going pretty well. That's amazing. I love that. Wow. So, and, you know, now we own all the buildings, too. We're all equal partners on the property. Like, you know, we own the building that burned out in paradise. We own our Oroville office outright. I think we only own 10 more years or 12 more years on the building in Chico. So, I mean, we have now a whole separate company that owns real estate. Uh, we just bought a Jesus, a 7,000 square foot commercial building in Philadelphia Square. I mean, I got a chiropractor, a computer engineer, an accounting. I mean, uh, the whole upstairs is rented from a finance company. There's a, yeah, there's a chiropractor, there's an insurance company, McGee Insurance. I mean, it's like all that came originally from deciding we were going to move out of an office that we were renting and we're going to buy a building. And then every time we expanded into another building, we're like, we should just buy the buildings. We shouldn't rent from someone else. You know, we should just rent from ourselves. It gives us more leeway. And it allows you to use, like on a triple net lease, you can actually use some of the company revenue to upgrade your building. So you can actually say, hey, look, we had to do this build out and the landlord didn't pay for it. And on the other hand, you're the landlord. So, you know, that stuff tends to make more and more sense as well. Yeah, well... Those those things that you uh, you think of along the way. Yeah, and that's the stuff you kind of learn. But I mean, you know, I was into it early on. I bought my first house when I was twenty three. I think I paid seventy two thousand dollars for it. 
that place for four years straight. And I sold it for $250,000 for sale by owner. First person that came and looked at it, bought it. Oh. I learned early on, you shouldn't just rent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, you should just buy the property. In the long run, it always works out better. Nice. And have you always known that you wanted to be in the business uh, so as like running a business? No, not really. I mean, I, I think, you know what? I've always found that wherever I worked, eventually I always ended up running the place because once I understood all the parameters, I was really good at managing. So I was torn when I was in school before I started doing this, I was, I was going to get a degree in business. But, you know, then I had so much just on the job experience and, and, you know, and it was good to be a manager. It was good to work for a big corporation and have to do all the, the BS that that goes with. It, it was good to have to have several employees. Uh, even when I did the surgical stuff, my territory was too big. So I hired a guy to work for me on the northern end of my territory. It was really good to have all those experiences. It was good to be an employee for so many years. So I understood it from the other side. Like, you know, if you don't feel appreciated as an employee, your job kind of sucks. So we go out of our way to make sure everyone, like, realizes how appreciative we are. And and on the other end, you know, do we just get so much more loyalty and, and so much harder work out of it? Because everyone understands it. We, if we succeed, we, but I'll tell you this, every two weeks we have a meeting with all of our staff. I'm very open with it. I share my profit and loss statements with all the employees. I mean, I'm, when things are going great, I tell them things are going great. When things are not going great, I'm like, guess what, guys? Things are not going great. <laughs> you know? So I'm not the guy who's sitting in my office trying to hide from my employees what we're making. I'm very open with that. I, I show them every time I get a new profit and loss statement, I show it to all the employees. And so that's something I feel like. Even if, so if we have a year where we make $180,000, great. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's a business. But they also recognize that, like, last year we made a grant, you know. So <laughs> I'm like, not a lot of pay raises happened here, guys, since we made $1,000 last year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that's huge, too, that open conversation. That's huge. I mean, they appreciate it because, you know, again, some years they know. There's a lot of people who've been with me now for almost the whole time we've been open. So they get it. I'm like, guys, our job is to make money. My partner, Bruce, gave us money. Like, he doesn't get a paycheck. At the end of the year, if the company makes money, he gets some of his money back. But, you know, so that's the way it's supposed to work. And they don't belittle that either. I mean, they get it. It's a business. And they also realize that we're just not making money hand over fist. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think all of them are are pretty content. And, And again, we just pay them well. You know, in a town where most people are paying minimum wage, I pay my front office staff 18 bucks an hour with full benefits. So I, there's just not a lot of that no. around here. I mean, there's just not. Doctors' offices aren't paying their staff that much. I mean, my technician were paying almost fifty thousand dollars a year. I pay my office manager over fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So I mean, there we're as possibly can be in a small town. Yes. But small the companies town. make money, you know, and they get that. They 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 get it. <laughs> Yeah, that's huge to to point out that you are in a rural area. That is very hard to come by. Yeah, there's just no jobs here. I feel really fortunate. My wife has makes all the real money. I mean, she she's the real breadwinner of the family, so I don't have as much like 
huge financial pressure. I mean, she's always made twice as much as me, if not more. And she has her own company. Her company is wildly successful. There's a really good chance that when she goes to, to sell her company, she'll probably get $100 million for her company. So I don't have the financial stress of like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I've always put money into retirement. So if her business collapsed tomorrow, I'd still be fine. But, you know, there's a really good chance that when we both retire, we're going to set up a large clinic in Belize and just treat patients for free and burn through several million dollars that she gets for her company just treating anyone that wants to be treated. Wow. That is the plan, is for her to get as much as she can, 80, 100 million bucks for the company, and then we'll buy a big spread down in Belize and we'll just see patients for free. That's so beautiful, man. Yeah, it's cool because then I know I know all these clinicians. Uh, if we have an extra house, I'm gonna be like, look, bring a load of, of spare parts because you can't reuse the parts in the states. We have to hold it all. We've been donating them to India for years, but it's like you just hold all those parts, and then when someone comes down, they bring an extra suitcase full of parts. And if they all help see patients twice a week, then we'll go fishing the rest of the time. So it wouldn't be that hard to get some other guys to come down and help if they had a place to stay. It would be a cool thing to be able to do for a, a small community somewhere. Right? We just happen to like Belize. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I don't doubt you one bit. I guarantee you guys will be changing Belize. <laughs> All of Belize, I guarantee it. Yeah, it's just kind of a cool thing. I think that that's a realistic thing to do in retirement. My wife is 100%. Like every time she hires a new person, she donates $1,000 to whatever cause they want. I mean, her company is set up. They, they donate enormous amounts of money. I mean, so she's, she does federal contracting. She, she started as a fraud investigator back when, you know, Ross Perot still owned the EDS. And then she was a project manager and then a director and then a vice president. And now she owns her own company. Wow. You, you both, you yeah. did it right. You're, you're a very smart man. Married, married a good one. And, and, and she's cute. So, oh, man. <laughs> wing <laughs> I love it so uh, just real quick what are one of your more favorite projects that you work on dogs <laughs> dogs I like working on the dogs <laughs> wow that's cool that's really yeah, cool yeah they're pretty fun they're challenging because it's really hard to take a mold of a dog <laughs> right you get a wrestle a pit bull uh, or something yeah, I do like to work on the dogs <laughs> that's great and uh, where did you go to school? So I went to Chico State. I went to View College, Chico State, uh, you know, local junior high, high school here. That's so cool. And so you obviously loved the area. I, mean, I do. You stayed it's just really hot. I remember thinking, like, how do you get a job here? Chico's one of those places that every bartender has a master's degree. So... Lots and lots of people went to school here and have higher education degrees. There's very few jobs. Yeah, and then they end up staying there. I mean, I I met quite a few people that have been there their whole lives. Yeah, because it's location, location. I mean, you're right against the foothills. It's a beautiful town. You got Bidwell Parks here. The Sacramento River runs through town. Lake Orville's 15 minutes away. I mean. You know, it's an hour's drive to Lake Shasta. Tahoe's three hours away. Like, we have a cabin in Warner Valley about near Chester. We go up there all the time. It's an hour and a half to get to the cabin. It's just right on top of Warner Creek. I mean, it's uh, it's beautiful here. It is. 
That's uh, that's where I went hunting up in Chester area. Yeah. Okay. So we're our cabin's seven miles out in Warner Valley. Nice. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's beautiful here, and it's still wild. You know, you can go out backpacking behind Cohasset where I grew up up there, and you're, you're you'll never see another human being. I mean, like there's just you can barely even get back there anymore, and there's just nobody. And so the wildlife is most of us have never seen a human. It's amazing to go back there. I love that stuff. I did a ton of that when I was young. Yeah, that's one of my regrets when I was living in the area is not you know getting to explore enough. Yeah. Um, in Lassen Park. Lassen Park is the least used national park in the country. Really? Yeah, it's right. It's an hour away. You know? I Yeah, I lived uh, in Forest Ranch when I was up there. So it was pretty far out okay. there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You know, I just the hours I was working was kind of odd and a long drive. But I did get to go explore up in Forest Ranch area, so that was nice. Yeah, some pretty stuff up there. Yeah, the Deer Creek Highway and getting to go fishing and whatnot was nice. Yeah, yeah. So just some kind of concluding questions for you. I mean, we're about done here, but um, is the business everything you expected when you first started it? Did you imagine that it would be as big as it is? Um, I Honestly, when we first started, I didn't have any expectation. It was me and Matt and a secretary. And you know, we didn't really have some vision of how big or how small the company would be. And I still would tell you, you know, we may up, we may end up opening another office down in the Sacramento area at some point here, but that's only if we have the right clinician to do it. You know, we've really learned that your success or your failure falls a hundred percent on who's the guy patient. That's why we've spent the last 10 years investing in an individual to come back and work for us. Mm, yeah. It makes sense. And do you guys have to do any, like a residency or anything like that when you're in oh, school? Yeah. Okay. And do you guys take yeah. interns? We we will take our guy. So we'll pay all the fees to do residency while he's there. But we won't do residency after that. Okay. Yeah, we're just about done here. This has been amazing. You have some really great stories, I man. I hope it at least has been somewhat informative. <laughs> oh, man, it's been so informative for business and just the workforce. and Yeah, it's really inspiring, actually. I, I hope uh, the listeners are very inspired as well. So speaking of inspiration, what was a source of inspiration or influence for you? Like when you were first starting the business or even now, What was what's like a good book or uh, like a good – I don't know, podcast or TED talk that you've listened to that's kind of made an impact on you? God, I, you know, I can't tell you off the top of my head. I would tell you the biggest thing that's made an impact on me is the first time you have someone come in in a wheelchair and walk out to their car. Oh. That is probably the most powerful thing you can have happen is for someone to wheel in in a chair, get up, walk around your office. I had a guy that I treated uh, a couple of years ago. In fact, he just called me in there day, MS patient. Um, he's about six foot four, almost 300 pounds. And he came in and said, hey, um, I haven't walked in three years, but I promised my daughter I would walk her down the aisle. And I was like, buddy, I don't know, man. You're, it's a, that's a big ask here. So I did an eval. 
Um, he could stand up with his knees hyperextended 15 degrees back. You know, his head trunk leaned anterior with Canadian crutches, but couldn't walk. But he had kept himself from developing knee and hip flexion contractures. Is the only reason I told him I would attempt to help him. So I made him a set of bilateral KAFOs. We fit him on a Thursday, and he walked his daughter down the aisle on a Saturday. And he called me last week. He's like, I don't know if you remember me. I'm like, oh, I couldn't forget you. He's like, I wanted to tell you that I, I have never gone back to my chair since I got the braces two years ago. I walk every day. So those are the things that I can tell you, not so much of TED Talk, but I think if you're in an office, and I'll tell you, the reason I picked that too is that I've had several of the kids that work there, like Stephen and Dylan, both say that that was the moment for them as well, which I could totally relate to, is when they were doing their residency or their ROP stuff from the high school, watching someone come in and then get up and walk out. I don't know if there's anything more powerful than that. Yeah, no, I got the chills. That uh, that was amazing. It was really, really great. and. Uh, I'm sure we could do this a lot more. Well, I'm sure I could listen to you a lot more than you would want to talk. <laughs> but I appreciate your time to no end. That was really, really great. And yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. And I certainly keep in touch and best of luck. And I, I hope, uh, I, I do hope that if someone actually hears it, it gives them a realistic idea of if they decide to go down that road. It's a, it's a very personal and rewarding career. But you have to be realistic. I mean, it's not something you're going to get rich doing. And if that's what your motivation is, I mean, I'd, I'd tell you the sky's the limit. You can be really creative. It's one of the few things left that you can still use your hands. I take a mold of a patient, we pour that in plaster, I shape it by hand. You still have the aspect of the mechanics involved with it mixed with the ability to be able to come in and do clinical assessments. So it's, a, I mean, it's just, in my mind, it's just the best of both worlds. I love it. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see more of your work. If anybody has any questions for you, um, could they reach you through Facebook or do you have any? Yeah, Facebook probably the best way. To be honest with you, we're, we're not all that website savvy, so it's pretty rare that we call the IT company and have them like, upgrade the website. Um, but we're pretty active through the Facebook stuff, and, and you know, I'll actually post stuff fairly often on there, new projects we're working on, and we respond really quickly to messaging. So if anyone had any questions, certainly shoot me something through Facebook and we get back to you pretty quick. Yeah, and you have all sorts of great pictures and of the projects you worked on too, so I definitely encourage any listeners to check that out. All right, thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate your your help and your influence, really. It's been really great. Absolutely.